0: I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily say that it transformed my practice, um, but it really uh, let's see now, I guess it's about uh, eight t- about ten years ago, really deepened and filled out my practice so that it became very holistic. My practice became very holistic. Um, you know, it, on the on the way to freedom. Um, the, the two sides of practice that um, we engage with are, um, they, they say that there are two wings uh, to this in this journey towards freedom and that one of them is the wing of wisdom and one of them is the wing of compassion of which I include in that love. I'm, I'm reframing compassion, love. Um, and actually cultivating the both wings is necessary, although you may have um, parts of the practice that really um, stand by you and hold you um, in ways, depending on our histories, our personalities, our life experiences, et cetera, et cetera. But there needs to be some familiarity and acumen with both aspects of the practice um, as a way to kind of um, meet, Meet in the middle, right? This is a practice about the middle way. Meet in the middle to inform us about what choices we make or don't make, what actions we take or don't take, um, how clear understanding appears or shows up for us or doesn't. So I'm going to share some uh, reflections on equanimity or Upeka. And oftentimes equanimity is... um, if you're reading about the Brahma Viharas, it's presented as the fourth one, but really the Brahma Vihar and Dawn spoke to Metta being the first one. Really, the Brahma Viharas are not linear, um, and it's more um, what is this called? Helix-like, where it moves in and out, in and out. And you know, the 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 really wonderful thing is that if you gain some uh, faculty with all of them the practice creates itself in terms of what might be needed or what might be the most useful at any one time. So that's why we're bringing equanimity forward now because it actually makes the practice of all the Brahma Vaharas, all the other Brahma Viharas, a bit more accessible and a bit easier um, to have this underpinning. Although equanimity isn't always the easiest thing to do if you just think about some of the things that you may not be equanimous about and think about trying to bring equanimity to those things. It's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. So from the Dhammapada, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dhamma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. That kind of encapsulates the whole kitten and caboodle, the whole shebang, right? the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of which a life is made. And imagine or, or just create the possibility that you can be embodied living your life in response to whatever comes across your path, whatever comes your way, whatever is in front of you, where you have developed the skill and the ability to meet whatever it is in an equanimous way and then be able to make the best, healthiest, most appropriate choices about how to engage with it. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions of Buddhist practice. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. While some of us may think of equanimity as dry or neutral or cool or aloofness. a mature equanimity practice produces a radiance and warmth of being. Like if you think of people, if you think of anybody, whether known to you personally or in the, the public domain who impresses you as somebody that's feel pretty equanimous, you know, most of those people, when I think about them, they're not really dry, cool people. They actually emanate a lot of love, not unlike the Dalai Lama. You know, that man is so full of laughter and joy and peace and ease. And he's very, very equanimous. I mean, he's a refugee from his own land, you know? And he's maintained over all these years a very equanimous relationship to circumstances and conditions. who was one of the teachers of our teachers, uh, meaning uh, Dawn and myself and and, uh, Viviana and Muriel. I tried to pronounce it the way you all pronounce it, Muriel. (laughs) Um, Meninger G was uh, our teacher's teachers. And what he had to say is it's all a passing show. Just watch it. And the bottom line is that all comes down to impermanence. Happy, sad today. Happy today, sad tomorrow. You know, it just swings back and forth. So that's why the onus is really on us or it's really helpful for us to develop this this ability to engage this quality of equanimity. Otherwise, we're blowing like the wind. However, the wind is blowing. That's how we're moving. Which causes a lot, a lot, a lot of suffering. As if None of you have experienced that. So I'm gonna talk a little bit, just a briefly a little bit about the interplay of the four heavenly abodes, which is one of the ways Dawn referred to meta this morning or sublime states of mind. So these four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right way, the wise way, the skillful way, the ideal way of conduct towards living beings, including ourselves. that's really important, including ourselves. They provide a context to all situations arising from social context. And mostly every situation is a social context, whether it's ourselves or with others or with conditions. These heavenly abodes are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle for existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned. And promote human brotherhood against the forces of egotism. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> or love states of mind can place us in relationship to all of that as a possibility. The Brahma Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind that again the brahma Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind and i have to keep reminding or i want to keep bringing forward that i'm always talking about ourselves as well as others right sometimes we're even in the position where um we're not aware of any hate or any um, uh, condition like that in relationship to somebody else, but it's all over us, right? So this Brahma Vahara is actually a road or a journey that we can take towards our own healing and acceptance and love of self. They're called abodes or Vihara, So Vihara means abodes because through practice, They become the mind's constant dwelling place where we feel at home. They hopefully will not remain merely places of rare and short visits, but places where we actually spend our time and are sourced from. In other words, our minds can become thoroughly saturated by them. They can become our inseparable companions and we can be mindful of them in all our common activities. As the Metta Sutta says, or from the Metta Sutta, the Song of Loving Kindness says, when standing, walking, sitting, or laying down, whenever one feels free of tiredness, let them establish well this mindfulness, this, it is said, is the divine abode. So like I, I like to say, walking, sitting, laying down, standing. Basically, Buddha is saying all the time. Our body is always in one of those positions where you're standing, laying down, sitting, or walking. So that would intimate to me that he's suggesting that we cultivate the capacity to reside in this abode of the Brahma Viharas 24 7 or as close as we can get to that. These Brahma Viharas, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka, or loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, they should be non exclusive and impartial not bound by selective preferences or prejudices. A mind that has attained the boundlessness of the Brahma Mahars will not harbor any national, racial, religious, gender, sexual orientation or class violence and hatred. And you can plug it in if I left anything out, like Dawn said earlier, we're doing our best and- some identity or something may have escaped me, but basically it's saying that the Brahma Viharas um, provide this welcoming acceptance of all of us. Until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with that mental attitude, it will not be so easy for us to affect that boundless application through deliberate effort of will. And to avoid consistently any kind of degree of partiality, even the slightest bit. And that's the hard part. Like the big, the big preferences and the big partiality, like I can see that. But it's those little subtle things that I'm going about my business and then it comes around and kicks me in the butt and says, ah, oh, but you didn't check this one. So you need to check this one. Yeah. So when we begin, you know, we're engaging and working with the quite obvious and the, um, the felt sense of aversion or preference in our body. But as we get more and more and more refined with the practice, it becomes subtler and subtler and calls for laser-like awareness to maybe uncover. A lot of times, when you have uncomfortable feeling in the body, that's a message that something's askew, that something's not right. And so often we're really trained in this culture to step over that or not pay attention to it or put it to the side or I'll get to it later. But actually, when we have those internal feelings of something being off, something needing to be looked at, that's the moment, if we pay attention, where the possibility for transformation exists. So really useful and important to cultivate the ability to recognize on whatever level. Generally speaking, persistent meditative practice will have two effects. First, it will allow these four qualities to sink deep into the heart so that they become spontaneous attitudes, which are not easily overthrown. So it's just there right? It's just there. Second, it will bring out and secure their boundless extension, the unfolding of their all-embracing range. The ultimate aim of attaining these Brahma Bihara concentrated states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis the liberating insight into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. A mind that has achieved meditative states induced by the sublime states will be pure, tranquil, firm, collected, and free of selfishness. Methodical meditative practice will help love, compassion, joy, and equanimity to become spontaneous. You don't even have to think about it, it's just there. It's just there. Absolutely, an opportunity to um, what I think I said or Dawn said in the very beginning this morning about the medicine or the antidote to challenge and difficulty. That's how we want to practice to the degree where the the spontaneity of showing up is just there without us engaging a lot of effort and strain. And it doesn't just happen on the cushion, right? That's the other thing about the Brahma Viharas that these are practices and ways of engaging and understanding that are so immediate that we can bring them along with us in the world throughout our daily lives not just when we're at a retreat or sitting on a cushion. It will help the mind be firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us to maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. In thoughts, words, and deeds. What is sourcing your deeds? Okay. Is there a lapse between the thought and the action? Because it's the action that creates the karma, the challenging of karma. I'm talking about karma now in this life, there's a whole retreat that we can do on karma and past lives and all of that. But I'm talking about in this life, we create through our thoughts and actions what's coming towards us. And so if we can uh, practice and cultivate clarity, purity of understanding, wisdom, um, and a strong heart, then we're creating karma that won't lead to suffering, but will lead to freedom. In addition, when one's conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, The mind will harbor less resentment, tension, and irritability. Our everyday life and thought has a strong influence on the meditative mind. It is only if the gap between them is persistently and consistently narrowed that there will be a chance for steady meditative deepening and growth leading us towards freedom. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow, and the dangers from their opposites. As the Buddha says, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and inclined. Ella Wilcox, a poet says, it is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows along like a song, but the person worthwhile is the person who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. You know, we can't really anticipate how beneficial the cultivation of these Brahma viharas can be, which I have learned over these last couple of years is my family has been visited quite a bit um, in relationship to sickness and kind of like immediate sickness that's not expected, but it's just like in the blink of an eye, something is different. And it's out of my equanimity practice that I've been able to navigate both becoming a caregiver and supporting my family and navigating the medical whole mishmogosh is a whole thing in and of itself so equanimity i'm so happy that i spent those years i spent a whole year just doing equanimity practice and um i think because of that i do have some access to it in terms of that spontaneous way that i was speaking to you about so just in terms of minds different minds and and getting a little bit of um maybe even more clarity around this energetic concept of equanimity. Um, I'm gonna give you the, the dictionary definition. So equanimity, evenness of mind, especially under stress. Evenness of mind, especially under stress. Or right disposition, balanced. And these are some synonyms composure, serenity, tranquility, calm, confidence, cool, patience, peace, placid, poise, steadiness, presence of mind. Sound like worthy, aspirations, yeah? That maybe those definitions and those, those synonyms give you a broader or a Uh, a more clear sensing into what I'm speaking in terms of the equanimity energy. Equanimity refers to a balance in the mind called neutrality of mind. Literally, Niku Bodhi translated as there in the middleness between extremes. There in the middleness between extremes. That's a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. This quality of evenness speaks to how it functions. When this middleness is cultivated, it brings about an unshakable quality of mind. There is a tremendous strength in that. Yeah, so I'm not going to go into it now because we're engaging with equanimity from the perspective of... um, the Brahma Viharas, but equanimity is also one of the paramis, the 10 paramis, the 10 perfections. Um, And it's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. So given that um, Buddha has equanimity all over the place in the Dhamma, I would say that it is an important um, practice and understanding and skill to engage with. So back to just a few minutes around the interrelationship of the four sublime states, because I think that's really um, useful to really get in your bones as an understanding. So they pervade and suffuse each other. Unbounded love guards compassion against turning into partiality prevents it from making discriminations by selecting and excluding and thus protects it from falling into partiality or aversion against the excluded side. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor too, transformed and controlled is part of perfect equanimity strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. You don't have to write this down. I'll I'll get it to Muriel or Viviana to, to put up so you don't have to write this down if you're interested in that. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from forgetting that while both are enjoying or giving temporary and limited happiness, there still exists at that time some most dreadful states of suffering in the world. It reminds them that their happiness coexists. We don't have to not be happy, but that the happiness coexists with measureless misery, perhaps even at the next doorstep. It is a reminder to love and sympathetic joy that there is more suffering in the world than they are able to mitigate. That after the effect of such mitigation has vanished. Sorrow and pain are sure to arise anew until suffering is uprooted entirely at the attainment of freedom. Compassion does not allow that love and sympathetic joy shut themselves up against the wide world by confining themselves to a narrow sector. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from turning into states of self satisfied complacency within a jealousy-guarded petty happiness. <laughs> rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from getting astray in the labyrinth of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity, being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aim we have to strive for. Equanimity, which means even-mindedness, gives to love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair, which confronts boundless compassion again. And again, to the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom. Indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. I think there's probably a lot of people on this retreat that are in that role or that position. And here again, equanimity means patience the patient devotion to the work of compassion. Mm -hmm. Lastly, equanimity is a perfect unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight, but in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, heartless, or frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness, but to a fullness of understanding to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead, cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. The mind infused with equanimity is unshakable because it is immutable. It is immutable because it clings to nothing which I think is one of the big things that Dawn spoke about earlier in relationship to meta. This attachment clinging thing, that's the one to get a hold of and let go, (laughs) get a hold of it and let it go. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm gonna just end with a quote and then we're gonna do a little bit of equanimity practice. and maybe we're not gonna end with a quote. Oh, here it is. Meta-kindness, this is written by Carolyn Jones, who is the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge at IMS, and Paul Burroughs. Meta-kindness is the love that connects. It is the antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna, or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna is the love that responds. It is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, or appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita is the love that celebrates. It is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka or equanimity brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. Metta kindness is the love that connects. Karuna, the love that responds. Mudita, the love that celebrates. And Upeka, the love that allows. Let's sit for a few minutes. I'll give a little bit of instruction. And like Dawn said earlier, very, very important to be relaxed and comfortable with Brahma Vihara practice. You're finding a supported position, sitting, standing, laying, becoming present to the body, the breath, feeling free to. Close your eyes, go off screen, open your eyes, whatever is the most helpful for you in this practice. And I'm gonna focus basically on um, uh, practicing this equanimity, taking this equanimity practice and applying it to ourselves. Like Dawn said earlier, there are five other categories. The one that we're gonna work with right now is ourselves. I will offer some suggested phrases and if they work for you as they are, please feel free to use them. And if they don't, please feel free to substitute what supports you in terms of engaging this equanimity practice. And I'm gonna offer a few different ones. Breathing in I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced. May I be at peace. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced? May I be at peace? Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I calm my mind. May I be balanced, may I be at peace. And you can continue on with that or engage with this next group of phrases. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all. May I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. and hear one last grouping of phrases. So feel free to engage with whichever one rests well for your heart. May I rest in not knowing? May I find ease in stillness. May I be equally near all things. May I rest in not knowing. May I find ease in stillness. May I be equally near all things. So what's available now is to take a 12-minute break. So given that we're all in different time zones, if you could come back to the screen 12 minutes from whatever time it is now here on the East Coast, it's 4.03. So... you shortly and then we'll be ending up our day together this part of it won't be ending the day but ending our day with some question and inquiry and a sit so take a break So it's about that time, Uh, a little less than an hour to be together today in this form. And we've actually covered quite a bit today, (laughs) quite a bit. So don't know if you all are inundated or where you're at, but thought we'd give this opportunity to have space open for any questions or inquiries or explorations um, that might be there for you, might be burning. Um, And we'll also do a short sit to end the time. Anything else, Dawn? Okay.
1: Just um, letting folks know how, how how you could ask uh, questions. So uh, Muriel, you'll be the one fielding them. And so basically, you could queue up either by raising your Zoom hand, and that's either, depending on the version of your Zoom, either under participants or reactions, and at the bottom of that screen that pops up is the raise hand feature. If you happen to forget how to do that, you can also chat privately or directly to Muriel. And so just type MU and then she should pop up in in the chat, in the participant list. And just let her know that I'd like to share. From there, you have two options. Uh, Muriel will, if you want to unmute, Muriel will unmute you. Otherwise, you could also simply put it into the chat. And then Muriel will read it out loud. Um, And then Dara and I will take turns responding unless there's something that is like, this is for Dara or this is for
2: Don. So that's it. So, so there's a first question and just not sure if the person wants to ask it. Oh, yes, After you.
3: Thank you. Um, yes, it's been fantastic. It's been a very, very deep exploration of some of the uh, most, Profound elements of what I believe we're all here striving for. Um, what I what I find when I go to sit, and this is couched in some degree of sharing in a safe space, because I imagine I'm not the only one. I I hope. But uh, Dawn's expression of her experience with her own fear, anger, suspicion, sense of safety, I think I, I resonated with a great deal. And my question or statement, as it were, was can we explore if within the remit of this retreat, acceptance of an imperfect self? Because as such, we all aspire to the Brahma Piharas, and as. Um, Dara, Dara said, they are the, the route to Bodhisattva, as well as the aspiration of Bodhisattva, which is actually a really, really engaging message. So thank you for that. Um, but yes, I am left in this space of an imperfect self, striving to escape the trance of unworthiness. Um, that's what I wanted to say. Thank you.
0: Thank you for for sharing that. And yes, I hope as you have that everyone experiences this as a safe place. And what I like to say is two things in kind of response to what you were saying. One is I'm in process. (laughs) I'm not a finished product. I'm in process and probably will be for the rest of this lifetime. And we are all perfect in our imperfections. It's actually our imperfections actually provide the gateway or the doorway to freedom, you know, like, so we kind of want to see those things. And hopefully what the practice does is allow us to be able to be with those places and those um, spaces that we deemed or assessed that way long enough without fleeing from it, without being averse to it, without being wanting it to change, et cetera. So that we can actually transform it. So in a way, we want to see, we want that to arise. We want to see what's there so we can work with it, and bring it out of the shadow. Hope that's a little bit in the ballpark of where you were.
3: Yes, for, for sure. I appreciate that a great deal. Uh, as 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 Dawn knows me pretty well, the the aspirational element of what we explore has been a, a, the, the double edge to the striving, which I
0: yes. yeah. struggled
3: with, right? <laughs> yeah. so that this, and then, and I said your message of the Brahma Vihara being a route, a path to the aspiration as well as the aspiration. That was extremely, uh, that that really resonated. So thank you for that. Yeah. So that may be the answer to my question as I still pursue, Process this, um, well done. but I do again not to just to bring to the to this particularly BIPOC again who knew who knew we had an acronym, but now we do. Um, and, and a colleague of mine uh, proposed a slightly different one uh, rather than Black Indigenous People of Color. Uh, those of a global majority, which I found quite, quite, ah, that's a good one. More of a positive uh, spin or whatever. But all that to say, the experiences we have, and I've been in, I've been invited to take part in diversity and inclusion, and it's all the workplace sort of dynamic that we're being engaged with right now. And I'm like, oh, well, great, you know, let's talk about this. But it, it's rooted in this sense of... Um, And and again, it it relates to anger and how it can be potent and seductive. In a lot of these cases, it's a justifiable anger. And that is the seductiveness of that path that, again, that's what I'm navigating.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you said, I'm sure you're not the only one. And you already are bringing awareness to it and recognizing the seductiveness of that energy right and that to make that discernment um i don't know this is my opinion it doesn't necessarily fall within the the ranks of my colleagues and and whatnot but i actually don't think in and of itself anger is a negative or an adverse energy or emotion to have it's where it's being generated from and what one decides to do or not do in relationship to that feeling. So, yeah, and more and more in these times, it's just becoming more and more um, accessible to us to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Is it Avi- Avinash? Yes. You Abby Abby Nash. Abby Nash. Yeah. Thank
3: you. Everybody knows me as Avi. And thank you very much for, for this space. And I'm not, again, I don't want to uh, monopolize this, but th- there is this sense of it's not only my anger, it's the anger of the people around me. And in I'm a healthcare worker, so the the degree of discomfort and, and conflict in our environment right now at the time in which we need community most mm-hmm. is expressing itself in such a way that there is a lot of flight mm-hmm. and... Re- retained and persistent conflict. And we are the leadership that are being asked, okay, what do we do about this? And yet more and more directiveness usually comes in the face of uncertainty or unsafety. So bringing safety or, or certainty to an uncertain, unsafe environment, is it's just such a contradiction. And I'm trying to coach upwards to my leadership in this way and when, when <laughs> they don't understand this sort of language, but it's the only language that, that, that is, you know, and we're, I'm go, we're going through this right now, where it's like, okay, let's set up a very clear set of rules and, and, and so that we can con- conform. And I'm like, oh God, that, that's just gonna increase or entrench the conflicts that are already there. There are reasonable, they're very, everybody has their perspective that is uh, reasonable from their, their view, right? Uh, And then people are being overworked, people are being underpaid, people are being undervalued. And I'm saying, so reverse that, value them, pay them, secure them, support them. Um,
0: So, one of the things that's really one, we're going to get a chance to go into some of this a little bit, perhaps if people choose tomorrow when we do some relational stuff. And there's one more thing I have to add. I'm just going to drop it in. Not only is it your anger, the work culture, anger, the, the anger that's swirling around there, but there's also a whole lot of intergenerational anger that's being kicked up now. And so to parse that out as to what's yours, what's there, what's ancestral can be really helpful in terms of centering you and grounding you and what you're up to. And we mustn't forget that.
2: There's a question from. Uh, thank you from Kim.
4: Hi, uh, my name is Kim. Um, thanks for that great question, Avinash, and that really great response. It touches on what I wanted to bring on, bring in, which is, um, you know, in talking about uh, UPeka and equanimity. Um, my question got a little dispersed because I'm now thinking about the question and the answer just before. But um, I feel very interested in, like, if, if the idea is that uh, equanimity, you know, is not aloofness, it's not coolness, um, what is it? Then we, okay, if it's not these other things, what is it in a felt sense, kind of way? I know you gave the example of the Dalai Lama and a few other people, and it's good. But I'm like, okay, but I see them, but like,
3: I can't ask them. Well, how do
4: they feel it? Like, how does? What's the felt sense of that? Is it a felt sense of um, being solid in? your sense of personal containment and being able to go, okay, waves inside, waves outside, uh, you know, like what's the felt sense of it? Kind of, it made me think um, in the answer beforehand, this quote, I don't know who, I don't know where it's from, but I remember it from when I was 19. It's something like, you know, the, the path to getting there are the qualities of being there. You know, and so this is kind of, that's what makes me ask this question. You know, it's like we can read about it, we can, but it's like, you know, in the end, it's always like these baby steps that we make viscerally that make something actually come alive. Like that's the embodiment of it. That's the like taking it from a concept into like, okay, I'm in this situation with this person or just my own spirit or whatever. Like, I don't know, you, you, you kind
0: of get what I'm saying. I don't want to drag on. Yeah, I yeah, do. I do. do. And, Dawn, and Dawn, if you have anything, absolutely. because we, because have, we different have different moms, and that but you but can you add, you add, add. And all, all, all I want to tell stuff. you, I don't know why it isn't. Okay, here, just clear up. Um, up. I can tell you my experience and um, how it is an internal, it is a, an internal felt sense that, lets me know that I'm in the right <laughs> domain and it's kind of a combination of a real feeling of groundedness, not heaviness, but a real like solid groundedness along with a lot of open space in here, like no contraction in the heart or the breath, like kind of those two things show up together that inform me that I am in relationship in an equanimous way with another myself, a condition or a situation. And I know immediately whether I can stop it or do anything about it in the moment. I know immediately when I step off, when I'm not equanimous about something. And so I think um, part of what got me there and part of what I'm getting in response to your inquiry is you will come to be familiar with what it feels like for you as a result of practicing with it and practicing with it in a consistent ongoing way not like once every when you remember but like making an intention doesn't have to even be a sitting practice but however you practice making it an intention that you're going to incorporate and integrate PECA practice or Brahma Vihara practice, whichever um, um, rings true for you, in that way, and you'll come to know you'll, you. It's a knowing as opposed to a thinking. It's a knowing.
2: Yeah.
1: Maybe I would just add um, that there is a sometimes it could feel like heartbreak, but freedom in the heartbreak. Um, at least that's how I've experienced it in a palpable way. There are times when equanimity can arise for mundane things and it's not as palpable, but there was just one of my ongoing stories that um, is one of the reasons why I came to practice is just the strained relationship with my father. And there was a time when I had seen him again after many years and there's still a lot of hurt, a lot of harm. And then um, I got home and I cried. However, there was this freedom in the heartbreak um, for me where it was, it hurt, however, it wasn't me. It no longer defined me as it used to. Um, it is not me, it's something that happened to me. and. And I have to admit, like I willed that to happen for years in my practice and it didn't happen because it was just like, I want. I had an agenda for this equanimity piece around the story, it didn't arise. Um, and then it arose on its own spontaneously. Um, and so it's kind of like, I, I feel like your co- question with Avi's question, it's a little bit um, related and how I see it is, um, well, a couple things because I I don't know if others do this, but I as a recovering perfectionist, it's easy for me to, to see equanimity, meta, and then measure my self-worth against how well in air quotes I got there. And so I like to do this with a lot of qualities that I come across in practice now, but I try and find what is, the the opposite quality of it or the so like for meta it's it's hate and then and to create my own spectrum between the two so that i'm not just striving for that that perfection but i can live in the progress like in uh in, in that spectrum or on that spectrum um and so I feel like with equanimity, depending on how emotionally involved we are with a given situation, we'll will land on different parts of that spectrum, basically.
2: Thanks. So there's another question. Thanks, um, and uh, the person. Uh, Susanna asked me to ask the question. So her question, their question, sorry, I wasn't able to, um, the question is about embodiment. I noticed that in many meditations um, highlight the importance of tuning into the mind and the heart, but I've rarely heard anything mentioned around the gut. I'm wondering if this is intentional because I know it can be a very sensitive area for most and I'm finding it more and more important to be with my belly just as much as my heart, mind to ensure I'm actually in my body and not floating away. Thank you. Yeah, um,
1: I like this question a lot. Um, for me, the body is a safe place. And it's a place where a lot of my dhamma uh, makes itself known or reveals itself to me. And it's not the case for everybody. Um, and so in some ways, when I hear um, I hear a lot of reference to heart and mind, I think if we remove the conventional thinking of what mind is, to me, it is in the body. Uh, at least for me, there's a different sort of wisdom that, that comes from the body as opposed to just the head or the intellect as, as we value in Western culture. Um, however, what Dara and I have been sharing is really body-based, even though it's through the doorway of the heart practices, for example. I personally, when it comes to guiding, I really encourage the practitioner to find the spot in their body that is most supportive. Um, there are people who, for, for whom the belly is not a supportive area to place their attention in. It could be activating. And there's a whole plethora of people who do find it supportive because for those who might've studied anatomy, there's this idea of the gut being the second brain. And for me, there to, you know, the butterflies in the stomach, it it does, when I get that, it really does talk to me. There is, my body does try to talk to me, and often it's belly or chest. However, that's, as I said, that's not the case for everyone. And if that's not the case for you, you don't, you can try it out. However, don't force yourself to go there, is what I think. Um, I think. Just through quieting and being in the body to some degree, whether that's noticing the feet, the contact of your buttocks with your support, the back leaning up against the chair or whatever it might be, um, that can be enough. Um, it doesn't need to be in one specific area, but I think there, it's this whole recipe, the, the slowing down, the quieting to listen in and tuning into the body. And I think the body is used so much because it's in this moment. We can think of the body in a future moment or anchor in time. However, there's no guarantee. And we can think of the body in the past, but that's just a memory. And so like a lot of the sense doors, sight, um, taste, smell, hearing, thoughts even, feeling it's all in this moment and so it's really that that's like the the extraction piece it's not the body that's important per se but really um anchoring in this moment in whatever doorway can be supportive for you mm-hmm. yeah dara do you want to add anything just um what's coming to mind is like, like trauma. trauma piece
0: um well of what I, if I heard the question correctly, the person I didn't quite catch the name was saying that they're finding that the gut is their, their home, their, their place of, of uh, knowledge. Um, and, you know, part of why it's been presented, I think you said, why is it offered this way or been presented? It's a cultural constr- contraction like that's a very Western, like the, the head the, the, and the heart. And I love the way Dawn defined for herself, which I agree with, that the mind is this whole system. It's not, it's not a brain function. It is a body function. Um, and so I would say that, that part of it is a cultural constriction that it's been offered that way. And as um, there are more and more diverse experiences and um, perceptions that will change, not unlike us starting off this morning with the meditation of elements of the body, earth, water, fire, and wind. So, you know, Dawn and I think it's very important, the body, as messenger, you know, the body holds the mind and the mind holds the body. And just in terms of trauma, in terms of what Dawn was speaking to in terms of, um, you gave the best, what I would say as well, you know, that if it, if it feels, um uncomfortable or even scary or fearful, or there's a lot of hurt in relationship to the body and trauma, there is probably a, even if it's just a quarter-sized place on the body that has some neutrality to it, where you can begin to work with embodiment in that way. So whether maybe it's an elbow, maybe it's an ear, I don't know what it might be for any one person, but that's a way to enter in. And if entering in the body is just too much on it, leave it alone for the time being. There's there's other, there's sound, there's um, touch, there, like there's other things. So if it's just too much um, to be with in the moment, just leave it alone until you acquire some strength of practice. And then you can go back and touch in, touch in, touch in. Um, but there's nothing that that there's no, um, uh, what do I want to say? There's no magic way that um, says that the body is the only way into freedom, but becoming embodied, you know, that's part of the price for being here, to be in our bodies, you know? And as, as Dawn said, the recognition oftentimes that um things that happen to us or things that we have to navigate they don't happen to us they happen to this body or they have so you know that's a place to to hang out and then lastly i'll say if it is really problematic and, and challenging and difficult to be in the body you know trauma in terms of um trauma histories and whatnot trauma in and of itself is silent it's hard to work with trauma um By yourself. so whether it's um, bibliotherapy or finding a therapist or um, peer um, healing, whatever it is um, for any one person, trauma does not resolve, dissolve and transform on its own. It needs assistance and support. So that's what I'd add to what you've already said Don <clears throat>
2: We have, um, thank you, another question from Cess, if you want to unmute.
5: Um. We can't hear you. Okay, Okay, so, hi, Um, thank you. Um, I have a question. To Dara specifically, I'm happy to also hear Don's Dan, um, perspective, of course. But it's mostly about um, I thought. Can you hear me clearly? Yes. Okay. Did,
0: did you say I thought?
5: Yes. Um, so I've been working um, with that with that modality for for a year now.
0: Oh, okay.
5: And I have a question about. The letting go piece and about the ancestors. Um, sometimes, um, I find myself in my body crying or doing an, doing a simple action during the day, and I feel that my face and my body belongs to my grandfather or like my great grandfathers, and as if I'm crying for them,
2: mm.
5: and. And I also realize their desires and their un- unaccomplished um or just just like they I, I almost have an access access to their thinking. And and I'm curious about how do I discern the letting go piece? Like how do I discern which one is something to let go, or which one is something to cultivate more um, hmm. about about the path that my ancestors would have wanted, or just couldn't want, uh, couldn't do it, or um, or or just like my connection to them in between those decisions. I would say it gets confusing. <laughs> I hope I was yes. articulate.
0: I think I heard most of it. You went, at, you went in and out once or twice. So if I missed something, you let me know, but I, I think I got it mainly. And just for those of you, um, which actually is a Canadian originates out of the mind of a Metis woman, I fought indigenous focusing oriented therapy and complex trauma, which is a form of intervention, which is a practice that actually centers intergenerational and multi-generational trauma. So it's collective as opposed to individually oriented. So I just wanted to let you know of what Seth was, was saying, speaking to. And in terms of the letting go piece, I think this is going to sound maybe sound really like, how do I do that? But I think the piece about the letting go is to let it all go. And then be a stand for what comes back. Like that's where the discernment is, not to make the choice intellectually about what to engage with or what needs to be transformed or what, but to let it all go and see what comes back through this knowing place, which I call the heart, you know, but it's not like the, the, it's the wisdom. See what comes back through the wisdom as wanting attention or wanting you to engage with or resolve, or that would be helpful for you in this present time. Even if it's coming from the ancestors, it may not be for them. It may be for you in terms of what's helpful in your life. Now, does that make sense to you?
5: Yes, absolutely. I think that's why it gets confusing because I feel what you're saying is like surrendering completely. more like letting go and like surrendering that completely
0: yeah yeah because it okay. doesn't come from figuring it out it comes from okay. no yeah that's the great thing about i thought right it's like it's a it's a felt sense mm. that's informing you of what the truth is for you mm.
5: mm-hmm. I see
0: glad to know you're engaged okay. with i thought. yeah <laughs>
2: There's maybe I don't know if we have oh Don you wanted to sorry get on no,
1: Ses hears me a lot so it so
2: I want to yeah. give space That's to Dorota. Nice. So <laughs> <Yes>. uh. <laughs> There's a last question I think we have maybe a bit uh, and I will ask. Um, okay. My question, I am very new to meditation and would like to deepen my practice. For context, I use podcasts to meditate occasionally, and this is my first retreat. I'm curious to hear from Dara and Don about their suggestions for where and how beginners should approach the journey to officially begin a meditation practice. From Shanique, thank you.
1: I'll say some some short words and then pass the baton to Dara. Um, So I'm excited that this is your first retreat. I sincerely hope it's not your last retreat. Um, we'll see how tomorrow goes, I guess, um, kidding. And so I just, yeah, one thing I love about technology kind of we're, we're experiencing it now, but just it, how it over helps us overcome certain barriers to practice. Um, whether it's finances, accessibility because of physical ability or inability, um, location, just so many things, finances, et cetera. Uh, And so apps and podcasts can be helpful as well. The way that I see it is it's one tool in the toolkit. It's not, uh, and just to pay attention or watch out if it becomes a crutch, That even though you're able to walk, you're unable to to let that crutch go. Um, So one thing you can do is is start weaning yourself off. So to maybe imagine the voices of the teachers that guide you through these apps and self-guide yourself. And perfection is not the goal. Yeah, your mind will wander and you might not want it to wander as long as it did or will. But that's the practice. This practice isn't about having this very peaceful and blissful meditation, and you're able to sit for two hours just like that. It's when, as the quote that I shared earlier from the Buddha that's already on your resources list. Our practice is simply knowing when the mind is scattered and knowing when the mind is gathered. And so some days you'll have a really agitated practice, and that's still practice. It's not less than. It might be. Unpleasant, but it's not less than. And same if it's uh, you if you have a string of of quite calm practices or steadying practices. Um. So that's one thing. So to try to wean yourself off, and and that could include perhaps something like you have one day with the app, two or three days off, or vice versa. You know. So, um, and it's normal. I I had this not because of apps but because of i was uh, my main practice for my first 3 or 4 years was mental noting and when i was trying to let go of the mental noting i felt as if and this could be perhaps a similar image with the apps but that i had my hand on the side of the pool the whole time and that i thought i needed to stay there with the hand on the on the side And then all of a sudden, as I was trying to self-guide or or not use mental noting so much, I felt like I was thrown into the deep end and I was scrambling and I even cried. I was like, I can't do this. And I was on retreat and, and I was scrambling. And then eventually that scrambling eased. And then I realized I could swim. And so And that sometimes I get tired and I want to hold on to the side of the pool. So it's not like only being in the deep end is the goal or only having these apps or things as support tools is the goal. It's somewhere in between what could be supportive. Um, Yeah, so those are just a few things that I'll say. And then Dara, if you want to add anything.
0: So one of the things that I would add is congratulations, your practice has begun like when you said, when am I, like your practice has begun. Now it's up to you as to whether you want to commit to consistently carrying that through and practicing to deepen your understanding and your your acumen with the practice. So it, it, it's, it's all grist for the mill. It, it's all good, so to speak. And, and you know, when I, <laughs> well here's like one of those old people when I started practicing there weren't so many options it was like you go to a retreat or you go to a community center and that's how you learn how to meditate now there's a myriad number of ways and it can be a little um much it can be a little it's hard to find your way in all the possibilities and options that are there so I think Don's instruction was really great and One of the things that um, I might add to that, because they're not podcasts, and it's actually what this retreat is going to end up on. You heard Muriel or Viviana speak about Dharma Seed, and Dharma Seed is a repository of talks given by um, Vipassana teachers, mostly through, um, well, now it's expanded a lot, but it was at one time between IMS and Spirit Rock, that there's hundreds and thousands, I mean, it's probably thousands, I don't know, of talks on Dharma Seed, and those are directed kind of to the, the, the classic understanding, the classic aspects of practice, um, even if it's coming through a new voice, different than many of the apps, which are Bites and, and really like, so you may want to, especially if you go to Dharma Seed and punch in practice instructions you'll have the opportunity to be guided um, in a 40 minute, 45 minute um, session. So that's one of the things you may wanna check out to see if that's helpful or useful. And then the other thing, and we'll probably talk about some other things tomorrow towards the end of the day also, but I alluded to it earlier, we're practicing in Sangha, practicing in community, whether it's online like this, in a community um, retreat center or a um, uh, stay at retreat center can be really, really helpful, especially when you're first starting out, because there's a variety of energy that's there that helps to support you and what you're up to. The first seven years of my practice, all I did at that time was just PLC. It wasn't BIPOC, nor was it. Um, the one that Avi said, <laughs> it was just POC. And for the first seven years of my practice, all I did was go to the POC retreat and the POC sit at New York Insight. And that's the crucible that cultivated my practice and actually landed me in the teacher seat. So to, to find what's what holds you, to find what supports you, um, to find what... Um, creates the possibility for wisdom to show up. And as Dawn said, sometimes, or many times, I think for many of us, um, at some point or another in a practice, you do get lost. You do get out in the middle of that water and what's going on? It's part of the practice. That's, that's another one of those breakthrough kind of moments where you come to trust yourself and your practice. So that's, I'd add that.
2: This was all the questions. So thank you.
1: All right. So we'll just end with our end our time together, not necessarily the day or your day of practice, but just our formal time together with a few moments of silence. You don't have to get into any fancy formal posture if you. Don't feel like it. It's really about the quality of awareness you're bringing to this moment. Let any words that were shared from today stick and land on your heart and mind and body. And trust that any ones that floated away will make their way back to you when you're ready or when it's time. You might even take these last minutes together to visualize the rest of your day and how practice will come alive in your expression from now until bedtime, when we wake up and gather again tomorrow. So just a few words as you slink off into the night or into depending where you are. Um, One way you can, depending on your life circumstances, one way that you can think about what to do for the rest of this time, as we continue to honor the retreat experience is that you could think of practice in blocks where you do a 30 or 45 minute walking or movement practice followed by 30 or 45 minute stationary practice. You might take a short break to eat or something like that and then do another block like that. Um, If say there's a kids banging on the door or partners banging on the door, waiting for you to get out of whatever room you're in, that might not be so possible. In which case, can you bring in some of the aspects that Dara and I talked about over the day, whether it's noticing the elements in your body, um, maybe scanning your body as you're waiting water to boil, looking at other beings through the lens of equanimity or metta whatever it is, can you infuse it or integrate it into your practice? Um, And it could be a combination, a hybrid, and to think of uh, getting as close to 24 seven as as much as we can, or short moments many times. Um, And then depending again on the time zone, for those of you um, who maybe for you, the retreat starts late in the day, same thing. You could add uh, add that exploration of of self practice in the morning, and then we'll get back. We'll come back together at ten a.m. Eastern for another day of practice together. Dara, Muriel, Bibiana, anything to add
0: before we go? The only thing that I would add, which is um, was said this morning, and I'm just going to repeat it now, if at all possible, even if you're interacting with people that you may live with, or like Dawn suggested earlier, if there's that one phone call that you have to make or that you have to respond to, as much as possible. See if you can stay off as much technology as possible, even if you can't do anything else um, for this evening. So that's the only other thing I would um, would add. Anything else, Muriel?
2: Nothing to add. Thank you.
1: All right, dear friends, be well, and I'll see you back here. We'll see you back here in like 17 hours, but who's counting?
2: (laughs)